All right, here we go again, Steve Dunn Podcast. I'm joined today by James Young. James is a mediator, and we thought it would be fun to talk about the process of becoming a mediator. What is it about you that compels you to become a mediator in the first place? What is the process of becoming certified? What do you learn? And then what's it like actually doing the work of mediation? James is a thoughtful guy. He's got the right personality for the job, and he's a very sharp dresser. I'm sure you'll enjoy James's insights about the world of mediation as much as I did. Let's take it away, James Young. I remember in my section, there were a hundred of us. I was the only African-American male, and there were two African-American females, and that's just how it was. I don't know what happened, but it was very, very low numbers there. And that's when I began to realize, wow, people really think differently, and they're hardwired in their thinking. And But I was still curious. I was like, you know, so why why would you say that? I'll never forget it. We, there was a, um, I think we were in civil procedure and we were studying due process and notice. So in essence, an African-American woman did not receive notice that she was being sued or she was being evicted, something along those lines. And a student raised his hand, Caucasian, he said, well, isn't it true that black people don't pay their bills on time anyway? I mean, I was just, I was floored. I couldn't, I was like, where is this coming from? So of course I had to talk with him after class. Okay, so what did you mean by that? And I quickly began to realize that a lot of those students, as bright as they were, they didn't have much contact with people other than themselves. Many of them went to some of the best Ivy League schools and I, their, their churches were not very diverse. Their neighborhoods weren't diverse. Their schools weren't diverse. So. I'm not quite sure they were given information, but it uh, grossly skewed as far as I'm concerned. I had a friend, his name was Jen Chen. He was from Taiwan and he would just stare. I'm like, okay, wh- why are you staring at me, Jen Chen? And he said, you know, I'm just shocked to see, I'm paraphrasing that, I'm shocked to see a black person in law school. I was like, well, what do you mean by that? He came straight from Taiwan and he said, well, the only black people that we see are those in the movies. And I was like, wow, Jin Chin. So again, I'm curious and I'm, I began to learn what makes people think the way that they do. And I had the good fortune of being able to study in Guatemala, Costa Rica, Spain. I traveled to various countries. I spent a significant amount of time in African countries as well. And Steve, when and how? What was the context of that? Yeah, so the African work is humanitarian work, actually, from my church. So I was pretty much the administrator. So my job was to help identify students who did not have access to education because of money, a lack of money. And in particular, what comes to mind is Malawi. When I went there, it was very clear that the families, if you had boys and girls, you know, children, the boys would go to school. If you had the resources, you start with the boys. And if there's anything left, then your girls go. And if there's nothing left, then the girls kind of get pushed out to be someone else's quote unquote problem. So you marry them off at age 12 or 13 and and that's how that works. So we didn't go there to offend anyone. We just simply let them know if you want your girls to be educated, we can help. 
So I was an administrator and I helped to find donors here to make that work. So when was this during your life? Is it in okay, relation to college and law school? Oh yeah. So that was probably about 15 years ago, 20 years ago when I started that, that type work. So just piecing it all together, I began to realize in the truest way that, you know, we are people first. It sounds cliche, but we are. You know, I've had the good fortune of dining with the Kennedys and the Cuomos, and I've also eaten with the peasants of Guatemala, or the poorest of poor in Africa. And we're all people. And I realized I don't place people on different levels based on their socioeconomic status, the color of their hair, their skin. None of that matters to me. We're people first. And I began to realize, you know what, I think I have something unique here, different, you know, I'm able to get past some of those things that divide us to try to get at what is the real issue here? Like, why are you, what, what's really driving your, your fear? It's clearly an important part of the work of mediation. And I think it's easy for a lot of people to wrap their heads around this concept of treating everyone the same. I think a lot of people think about that and they think like, oh, okay, so you mean like you're showing respect to the poor and downtrodden or to the janitor in your building or something like that. And that's, definitely part of it. But another part of it is not being overly deferential to the CEO. Exactly. And so showing the, the same amount of respect, whether that's a lot or not too much. Absolutely. Right? And that's absolutely. the part of the equation that I think a lot of people miss, but I think it's absolutely a huge part of the work because there's this aspect of mediation work that involves relating to people and being open and understanding of all different life experiences while at the same time being sort of in command of the process that you are administering in that moment, right? And Absolutely. not and not letting yourself get run over by anybody. And that includes some hard charging type A types, which it sounds like <laughs> you've had some uh, some meals and some interactions with. I have, absolutely. And 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 to your point about, you know, showing respect across the board. I was taught by my grandmother that there are no big eyes and no little use. That's how she would express that concept. We treat everybody with dignity and respect, and that's just how it is. That's how I was raised, and that's how I continue to be and raise my children. So, but yes, there, you know, I've walked into mediations where, you know, I've been in some of the rural parts of North Carolina, and I've been to some of the most posh offices in, in Charlotte, downtown Charlotte, and for me, it's all the same, Steve. It's all the same. The, the concepts are the same, and I found that I'm able to relate to anyone. There's some area, it doesn't matter who it is I come across, I can relate. And it's, it feels like it's mutual, if that kind of makes sense, you know? Absolutely, it does. I mean, there's there's human experiences that we all can recognize as being universal. Things like being hungry or being tired or feeling rejected by someone you love. You know, stuff like that, that everybody goes through and I think everybody knows about. There's other aspects of the human experience that are also universal but underappreciated, like being uncomfortable by the fact that you're involved in a thorny dispute <laughs> you know like sure. it doesn't feel good sure and i'm t i am totally convinced that everybody always wants to settle the case <laughs> I've, I've come to believe that and we spend so much time in mediations a lot of times we spend a lot of time talking about how we don't want to settle the case right. and how we're going to win the case and right, how right we're gonna we're willing to take it to the u.s supreme court if we have to but then at the end when it's finally resolved there's this palpable sense of relief and yes. happiness everybody's been grouchy all day is all of a sudden smiling even yes. if they don't like the deal you know right. even if it's not what they wanted 
to get accomplished. They're just so glad that it's over. And it's that part of the human experience. Sure. Steve, in, in terms of what actually brought me to mediation, it was probably at least maybe 15 years ago. I was in a workers' comp mediation. I was plaintiff's counsel, and I was I brought in someone. Now, is this the work you're mostly doing at that time, plaintiff's workers' comp? Is there, What was your practice? Yeah, so interestingly enough, when I finished law school, I said, you know what, I will never practice criminal law because I did not want to defend people who were probably guilty, but yet I saw some serious concerns about prosecutions and inequities in that. So I said, I'll never practice criminal law. So as soon as I finished law school, I received a call from an attorney, a criminal law attorney, and he knew that I speak Spanish. I'm not sure how he found out. And he had a defendant that was Spanish speaking. He'd asked if I'd come on board. I said, okay, sure. And then from that point, some of the judges found out that I'm Spanish speaking and this, the Latino population had exploded in North Carolina. And next thing you know, I was getting requests by judges to take quarter pointed cases, you know. So... Starting practicing, just starting the practice of law. Okay, I need to get my practice going. I don't want to practice criminal law. There's no one around bilingual that's an attorney that can really relate to that community. So I said, okay, I'll just do it. So I practiced criminal law and I did practice immigration law. I did some workers' comp, some personal injury. And after a while, I just couldn't do the criminal law anymore. It was really, it was killing my soul. I just, the, the, the issues, you know, the, Many of the defendants also had mental health issues. Look, Some had it's important issues. work. Okay, it is important to hold the state to its burden, right? It Absolutely, is, it's important work. It's it's an underappreciated profession, in my view. These you know folks who are defending the, sort of the worst of the worst and the lowest yes. of the low are actually the you know they're the first line of defense against an overreaching government. And Goodness. when you lose a case, it's not like losing the cases that I lost, where some one rich guy has a little bit less money and some exactly. other rich guy has a little bit more money, right? In your situations, people are going away they for are. time, Absolutely. And away from their families, Absolutely. and losing their freedom. Them. And they're not, I, I would venture a guess that they're not necessarily grateful for your efforts. Do you mind if I give you an example? Please. So, so one of the last cases I tried, it was a drug case. It was a hand-to-hand sale. And I told my client after I went through discovery, I said, you know, I think you really might want to take this plea deal. From day one, he said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And he gave me his reasons why. I said, listen, I understand. I said, I'm not in law school. They didn't teach us magic tricks. Okay. I understand the law. I can analyze it. I can argue it and I'll do the best that I can. And based on my experience, I think this is what you should do. And we got the DA to, you know, come down to a misdemeanor. Absolutely not. So one of the theories that we have is appearing before a judge and a jury looking silly and wasting their time. That's, that's just always in the back of our head when you think there's no defense. So he made me try the case court-appointed case, by the way. So we're in this county, and there are only two African-Americans in the courtroom, me and my client. Right. Okay, so just kind of paint that picture. And the state called in someone from the SBI, all these different witnesses they had, you know, but then their case started to fall apart. So supposedly they had this photo of my client, and when it came time to present it, they couldn't locate it supposedly has some type of video or recording. But then when it was time to play the video or the recording, the machine didn't work. 
and it was an antiquated machine. It would take them weeks to have gotten the part. So the case began to fall apart right in front of all of our eyes. And when we finally rested, both sides rested, did my closing argument, I'm thinking, you know, he might actually win this thing now. So the jury was out for a few hours. And the judge said, well, okay, it's like five o'clock, come back tomorrow. I'm thinking, what could they be back there talking about, you know? And we came back the next day, we waited a few hours, and next thing you know, they said, no, we're, 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 we're deadlocked. The judge said, in essence, go back and try it again. I'm not telling you that you should find him guilty or not guilty, but go back and see if you can reach a decision, reach a verdict. And they came back a couple hours later, absolutely not, we're, we're deadlocked. So there were one or two holdouts, apparently, so when the judge brought us back in and basically said, you know, mistrial, my client stood up, he walked away, he didn't say goodbye, he certainly didn't say thank you. It was just, I just, I mean, and keep in mind now, these cases, we take this stuff home with us at night. It, it, it spans, it bleeds into the weekend, you know, and I was like, you know, wow. I mean, I gave it all that I had, and is it too much to ask for a thank you? or yeah, just you just worked see, a miracle. Yeah, or just see you later, but yeah. none of that. I said, you know, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. Well, in his mind, that's the way it should, that's what should have happened the whole time. Right? Okay. Like, that, that, that's just what he expected, like, should have been the case. Right? Oh, my so. goodness. So, I just couldn't anymore. I couldn't. So well, I, how did you find your way to mediation then? So... There was a workers' comp case that I was, I was plaintiff's counsel, and I brought someone in as plaintiff's counsel as well. And she has tons of experience in workers' comp. She's an attorney. Actually, she's in Charlotte now. She was in Greensboro. And she said, you know, you'd make an excellent mediator. I was like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, you know, mediation, yeah. She said, no, no, no. She said, you'd make an excellent mediator. So I, that just kind of, you know, stuck in the back of my mind. And some years going forward, when I said no more to criminal law, no more to litigation, I've done that. I've done both. You know, I've done this. I've done. I've done both sides of that, and I didn't like the stress of it. I think I was very, fairly successful. I didn't like it. I just wasn't who I am. I could do it, but it wasn't who I am. So what that colleague had told me, it just came back to me. I said, you know what? Let me just look into it. And then I went on to get certified, and that's pretty much all she wrote and I was like wow this is where I was supposed to be but I had to go through those experiences to be even better uh, mediation it wasn't just an academic exercise for me I brought I bring tons of experiences with me to help how did you get certified I went through mediation Inc I believe yeah mediation Inc and it was a 40-hour course where where'd you take it actually I took it in Charlotte yeah, I took is that Andy Little's course? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So did I. I took it in Chapel Hill. Okay. The, my experience of the 40-hour certification course was that it was more rigorous than mm -hmm. I was expecting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I took it in Chapel Hill. I had gone to law school in Chapel Hill, and I'd been practicing law for about 10 years or so. And so I, I thought this is going to be like a chill week. Like <laughs> right. I'm going to, so I, right. I'm going to Chapel Hill. I'm going to stay in a hotel. I'm going to, sure. you know, I'm going to have plenty of free time. Be like, sure. like doing a CLE every sure. day or something. But my experience of it was that it was really intense. It, like there was a lot of learning every single day. And then there was homework. Yes. There was a lot of homework Absolutely. that we had to do. Absolutely. So what, what did you think of the course itself? I also thought that it was rigorous. It was interesting in that, you know, just learning the art of how do you get people to change their mind to resolve a conflict. For our listeners, what this 
course involves is it's a mixture of sort of classroom lecture type stuff and reading, but a lot of it, and in my view, the most helpful parts of it are simulated mediations where sometimes you, you play different roles in this process. Sometimes you're a plaintiff, sometimes you're a defendant, sometimes you're the mediator. And through these simulated exercises, it's really the first chance that you have to actually kind of do it, you know, right, to, like, right. to like, do the work. And they construct these hypothetical scenarios that are pretty challenging. They're yes. you know, pretty tough. There's always yes. a little wrinkle yes. involved in each one that you got to kind of work through. Yeah, and I, yeah. I just thought that they were, and they have these really great established and experienced mediators who are there to coach you through it too. Right. Andy Little's kind of like the main teacher, but they have a whole uh, team of really great mediators who are there to sort of talk you through it and critique your performance. I I thought it was exceptionally well done. And it sounds like you did too. Absolutely. And Steve, one question that, that sticks in my mind from that course, Andy asked us, how do you get a person to change his or her mind? And I thought, wow, because some of us never do it, you know, politics, for example, or religion. I was like, well, how do you get a person to change? And, I, and I, that, that, that struck a deep chord with me. And one of the things that I certainly realized is that people will change their mind if they get new information that they believe. And that's one. So that was a powerful thing. So you walk in these mediations and usually they're oftentimes both sides are kind of deadlock so to speak or they have in mind what they want but how do you get them to change that and it's not always an easy thing to do but no it's not it's not easy at all and I think another a way that I think of it and I think this comes up in mediations a lot is how do you get someone to accept the thing that they already know so, so sometimes there's a matter of, of changing one's mind. Sometimes it's a matter of, and when you think of changing a mind, a lot of times we think of it as being like, you know, from yes to no or from, right. you know, from one to zero, right? But a lot of times yeah. it's more like, we just got to get you from one to like 1.2. Right. <laughs> right. Just got to right. move the needle a little bit, right? Right. But then I, what I find a lot of times in mediation is the challenge of getting folks to, a, accept and be okay with the thing that deep down they already know and already believe and I I think that the most effective way so far that I figured out how to do that is to get people talking about what they believe about what their values are about how they make decisions about what they want for the future one of the best phrases I ever heard is that people believe the thing that they hear themselves say. Yeah, absolutely interesting. And and then one thing, Steve, that's a challenge to me at times in mediation is when you have the attorney for either side, he tells you, this isn't going to settle. Oh, I love that. I mean, like, but yeah. well, Oftentimes, it's true. <laughs> so, sometimes they do know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's just one way of just measuring, like, everyone's relative optimism. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So I had a mediation last week, and the attorney said, this isn't going to settle. And then when we were in open session, I asked, well, do you all 
are you, do you want to settle the case? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, hmm. And ultimately, it did settle. But it's interesting because obviously the attorney can kind of influence his client as to how he should be thinking or to what extent they should try to get the matter resolved. Well, so the next thing that you have to do in the certification process is you got to observe some real life mediations, right? Absolutely. And you're a lawyer, so you only had to do two of them, right? right? That's so how was that? How was scheduling it? And what do you remember about those experiences? It was extremely difficult. First of all, to find mediators that would actually allow me to observe, and I would, and Andy told us to be careful because the mediation field is kind of it's it's competitive, and he said start looking for those that may allow you to observe now. Don't wait until the end of the session or a month or so out because it's very difficult. And he said that. Well, I can tell you this: as somebody who's on the other end of that equation now, it's. Every time a class graduates, there's this little rush. As someone who frequently gets asked for observations, yes. I can tell you that I, like, I know whenever one of those classes wraps up because that's when I start getting <laughs> So he was he was right. Like you, If you start at the beginning of the class, right. you'll have the jump on all I those see. people who are going to start like a week later, right? I you, see. you probably didn't do that. I didn't do that. Right, I, right. I waited until it was over. But you know, one of the things I did was I observed him. I observed Andy Little because he, you can't teach the class right. and you're not going to let people observe exactly. you, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And he agreed because I was having difficulty finding uh, someone to allow me to observe. He certainly uh, to, uh, to help in that way. But retired Judge Ron Spivey, district court judge, I think he went on to Superior Court, actually. Yeah. Out of Forsyth County. He said, oh, I remember you, James. Sure. So he allowed me to observe. And then one of the very cl- the very attorney that said you'd be a great mediator one day, I called her. I said, hey. I finished my training. I need to get an observation in. She said, don't worry. And then she had a mediation coming up. She contacted the mediator and said, would you mind? And of course, he said yes, because I think she hired him quite a bit. So that that's how that worked. That's but, a good way to get in. Yeah, yeah. But, but it wasn't easy. But I'll tell you this. After I became certified, a person that wanted to observe contacted me. And I did everything I could to make sure that his experience wasn't mine. And But... You know, there's a risk in that, though, you know, when you bring people in to observe. And I didn't. All right. Let's talk about it, man. Yeah, let's I, just go ahead and have this conversation. Yeah. All right, and yeah, so. All right. First of all, I think I always try to say yes. I always I always want to say yes. Yeah. And sometimes the parties don't want to have it. And that's, right. so sometimes that's the reason why I got to say no. But yeah, it's complicated. Like it is. It is an administrative burden for sure. Like yes. it, it, it just adds a whole other layer to like scheduling and it logistics does. and everything. And then it can be kind of weird. It, <laughs> you it know, can be. Quite frankly, it's a it's a sort of you know almost all of the observers that I've had have been, have done their best to like do their best. Like right. they, they're just fly on the wall. They right. don't, they don't right. say anything, and, right. and that's great. But it's still inherently a wild card. It is. And every once in a while, you get somebody who behaves like a wild card. Every once in a while, you know, you have somebody who kind of chimes in and yeah. sort of throws in their, <laughs> their <Yeah>. two cents. <laughs> and, yeah, and Steve, you know, so at that point, there was an attorney in a county, somewhat rural, and again, you know, I'm the only African-American oh, around. About as much diversity as your high school. Exactly. Uh, sure. But, yeah. but he's a super nice guy, and he had a string of mediations for a particular issue that had to be dealt with. So there were like like 15 people had this same type issue, and 
So I said, you know, to myself, I said, I know he wouldn't mind it, but what about his clients? Because they're from rural areas. Honestly, I didn't know what their take was on racial. They were probably shocked to see me walk in, to be quite honest. So, and the gentleman that wanted to observe, he's also African-American. So I said, you know, I don't know if it's going to make them feel uncomfortable or if they're going to want, you know. So that was another element, too, I had to kind of deal with. So I didn't know if I was looking too much into it or not, but it was, it was, it was, interesting and the gentleman that that was seeking his certification he had a he had like a loud personality <laughs> he was super nice but it was just awkward at at first and the actual room that we were in with the mediation was kind of small so I don't know but I thought I would just take someone took a risk on me and and I thought it was just the right thing to do so we got him through I think you gotta you gotta try to say yes yeah. you, you gotta do your best to make it work out but it it should be acknowledged and understood that it's it's a challenge okay so you find yourself certified you've been through the training but would you agree with the proposition that there is no learning experience that is nearly as good as actual experience doing the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. How's that been for you? It's, it's been interesting and because every mediation is so different. That's it right. could be the same issue, but they're, they're just so different. The personalities involved are different. You know, you're in like the one I had last week. I really thought up front, there's no way to get this settled. I just, they were just both, you know, in their own, in their own minds. But uh, if you can keep the litigants talking, then that's when oftentimes you're able to find a hook or you're able to find some way to keep them moving towards resolution. But whenever they stop talking, that, that's a problem. And i tell you what I did to help keep this one going. I usually ask early on, okay, so what is it that you really want? Like what's really most important for you here? And the gentleman told me, and I wrote that down. And three or four hours in, we were nowhere near what he told me initially. So both of them had kicked me out, you know, so I was sitting in the lobby just kind of thinking and, you know, what can we do? I flipped through my notes and I went back. I said, but this is what he told me he wanted, you know, 20 minutes in. This is what he said was most important. So why are we focusing on other things now? So I thought, how can I bring him back? to what he said without making him feel uncomfortable or make him feel like I'm kind of putting the screws in. So I took a deep breath and I just came back. I said, now I like to just kind of review my notes, kind of see where we were. So initially, you know, I said, these are things that you said. And then when I asked you specifically, what do you need? What's most important to you? This is what you told me. I said, so is that still what's most important to you? Let's see if we can kind of get back to that. And then getting back to that actually kind of meant reducing the number if that makes sense and that's how we were able to keep going so every mediation is different you know you, we have these principles in our mind things we've used in the past but you just take all that with you and then you just kind of extract what you need as you go along 100 percent. there are so many aspects of it that i think in my own growth as a professional i went through like a a long process of just figuring out how to do it. And then, I, and I used to, I, I vividly recall, I used to just drive home after mediations a lot of times, like thinking about the things that I could have done differently, sure. that I should have done better. And then I got to a point, and this lasted for a long time, where I felt like I knew how to do it. I had it mm -hmm. sort of figured out, mm -hmm. and I didn't second guess myself a lot. But 
what I was doing was very formulaic. I was just kind of doing the same thing every time. And I had sure. like sort of stock words and phrases and certain approaches, sure. certain rules that I would sure. follow and never vary from. And now what I'm finding more and more often is truly acting on a case-by-case basis sure. and just taking the situation as it comes and breaking my own uh, sure. a lot more often than I used to. Just doing. I had one the other day that it was very unusual for a lot of reasons. I had an observer, believe it or not, and I – I kept having to go out in the hall and tell this guy, like, hey, man, just, you know, FYI, it's never like this. Right, right. <laughs> this is not the way that it is. We didn't get our first offer. We didn't get our first our first real offer to settle the case until, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because we – and we spent the whole rest of the day just talking about it and just talking about – do we want to settle this thing? Are we going to settle this thing? How are we going to settle right. this thing? Why are we going to settle this thing? What's standing in the way and how? And it was, you know, it was a very unusual case. And I won't delve into all the details sure. of it, but it was, you know, all the rules just sort of got out the window. Yeah. Well, you have found that your ability to speak Spanish has been useful in the mediation world as well. It has been. And that's, I want to develop more of that, develop more practice, more in that area. But this first case I recall where there were Spanish speaking litigants, uh, they had no idea that I could speak Spanish when I came in, but plaintiff's counsel knew. So she asked me if I would give my opening remarks in Spanish. And I was like, well, sure. And defense counsel could speak Spanish pretty well as well. So that was, uh, I watched litigants and they almost like melted. You know, it was like, wow, he, he understands us. He can speak our language. So whenever I'd come back to their room, you know, their attorney, she was interested in learning. So we would just kind of chit chat back and forth in Spanish to the extent that she wanted. There was an interpreter there as well. But sometimes we would let the interpreter rest and we would just talk. We would just talk. And we were very, that was a very good mediation. It, it settled, of course. But there's no doubt about it. When you look at a person, you say, oh, where are you from? Guatemala. I was like, oh, I, I know. I've been, well, we say I know in Spanish, but to say I've been to. But, yeah, I've been to Florida, Antigua. And they just kind of like, really? El Petén. Like, I'm like, yes, it's a beautiful country. And all those things help to, to build trust, to build rapport. And, um I just find it's just very powerful. So, but I do want to develop that area of my practice more. There, there's a huge need, I think. I think there is, and yeah. I just need to kind of you know figure out how to get in, get in those doors. Are you aware of any other Spanish-speaking mediators? I trained with one, and believe it or not, I saw him after we finished our, our training. Maybe like three or four months later, he was refereeing a basketball game. I was like, "Hey, how's it going?" He said, "No, I just I didn't pursue it. You know, I just that's kind of hard to get in the market and that kind of thing. So I don't know of any others that are bilingual. But he was a super nice guy. I thought he'd make a great. Mediator, it's really surprising. It seems like it was. It, it seems like an obvious thing mm-hmm. that would be really valuable. That mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a need for. And and I, I'm I'm sure that th- that that time will come. You know, I think yeah. a new generation of kids, like the children of immigrants, are, mm-hmm. are going to college and mm-hmm. going to law school, and mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time. But in the meantime, it is certainly a valuable skill that you bring to the table. What do you like about being a mediator? I like staying out of the conflict circle, <laughs> and I also like delving into the real issues underlying issue and making both parties feel respected and human along that process and i like being able to facilitate resolving disputes so everybody leaves maybe not 100 percent quote-unquote happy but it's resolved the one that i had last week when i was at the point where i thought we would resolve it he kicked us out of the room and he called his wife i said that's fine you this affects her too 
he called his wife and we came back in. He said, okay, we're, we're ready to end this now. So it's just a huge, it just makes me feel good. You know, when I see people that have been struggling sometimes for years with this issue and they're able to let it go and move on with their life, that's, that's most gratifying for me. It really is. I think you said it all. It's you, you spend time with folks and more often than not, they leave better than they came in in mm-hmm. a better place because they've deleted this conflict from their life yes. that whether they, you know, a lot of times I think people don't want to ad- ad- acknowledge or admit how draining and yeah. how negative being involved in a dispute is yes and i think that's just like it's like a defense mechanism like you don't want to it's your life you're stuck with it and so you don't want to just constantly dwell on how miserable it is but on the other hand mediation is the perfect opportunity for you to to dwell on how miserable it is because we can make it go away today you know you just gotta you just gotta you know move the needle just a lot of times just a little bit you know yeah yeah and oftentimes steve as you know that the misery isn't limited to the actual litigant it's their spouse it's the children sometimes, you know, and you can just, you just see it. And sometimes they'll bring the spouse in with them. It was a case that had to do with, it was libel. I won't go into detail, but, you know, some very prominent folks. And, you know, the fact that we were able to get it resolved with, I'll just leave it at that. We were able to get it resolved. And not a dollar was exchanged. We were able to work through that. We were able to work through the emotion of it on the boat that the emotions they were high. I mean, the tears were flying and, you know, tears were falling rather. And it was a highly charged issue. And I could see both sides as to why they would be upset. But after about five or six hours, we were able to get it resolved and they were able to move on. So that's it's not always gratifying. about money. It's, it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not. Money's always an issue, but it's very rarely the only issue. It's and true. There's, there's always something else to talk about. And as we talk about how the the unique opportunity that this work affords us to make a positive difference in people's lives, we think about the the litigants themselves and the families of the litigants themselves. But you and I are lawyers, mm-hmm. and we help the lawyers too. Sure. Yeah. How often have you had a case heading into mediation where you're thinking, please settle, please settle, please settle. <laughs> oh, please, please, mediator. I need, you, I need you to help me, man. Absolutely. I need you to get this thing done. And if they don't actually articulate that, you know that's what they're thinking. <laughs> well, they, most of the time. Yeah. People, a lot of times, I think lawyers think that the lawyer on the other side doesn't really want to settle, but I don't know, man. I, I think everybody wants to settle. I really do. Almost all the time. Yes. Yeah. Some lawyers, they want out. That, that sometimes it's a difficult client a difficult issue they may not be making as much of the case they thought they're ready to move on so absolutely and it's pretty clear to me when lawyers are actually thinking that way whether or not they actually articulate it but it's pretty clear yeah well i think the same thing like a lot of times like lawyers my observation is a lot of times they want to portray great great confidence work ethic willingness yes. to see it through you yes. know like total total lack of concern about right you know how hard it's going to be or what you know whether they're going right. to lose or whatever but in reality we all are human beings and you said something earlier that really stuck with me because it's so true which is we take this stuff home with us and how many times have you had a case that Ugh. was the last thing you thought about when your head hit the pillow at night and the first thing you thought about in the morning 
And we as lawyers have that experience a lot. We really live with these things. I think the good ones, you know, the good ones too. I agree. And how wonderful it is when you can come out of a mediation with a settlement and know that there's a framework in place for this thing to to finally be over with, you yeah. know, to finally be done. I think Absolutely. It, I think we're doing great work, not just for the litigants, but for everybody who's involved in the process. And it's a privilege to be able to do it. Yeah, I, I certainly, I second that. I second that. Peace. Let's seek peace. Let's let's come now and let us reason together. You know, can, what what can we do? You know, where's the common ground? Is there something that we can do, you know, to kind of make sure we both leave somewhat satisfied? But what what can we do? You know, and that's that's one of the questions. You know, in terms of the training that Andy said to ask whenever you think things are kind of going downhill, he said to ask, "What else can we do?" And I use that often. Okay, well, what else can we do? Well, that says it all. James Young, thank you so much for spending time with me today on the Steve Dunn Podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. My pleasure. (laughs) 